Welcome to Overdue Classics, the podcast for all the books you've been meaning to read. I'm Brandon LeBlanc, and I am joined once again by Andrea Lipinski and Dr. Matthew Bianco. Good Hello. to see you guys. Good to see you. We mentioned last time that we, you know, we read this and and, and the Statesman uh, as an office a couple of years ago, and but we also mentioned that we didn't really remember the, this one, and I definitely did not remember the life of Numa when I got back into it. Because we didn't practice narration last time. That's exactly that. That's we exactly right. Narration and we would remember. Right. Which is why we're not going to make that mistake this time. Because I was, exactly. and I'm so inspired by the amazing job that uh, Dr. Bianco did last time and came and schooled us on how to do narration after being gone for so long that I'm <laughs> going to give our narration this time on Numa. Um, all right. So, Numa, we're talking about one of the uh, earliest um, Roman kings. <laughs> Although, just like with Lycurgus, there's some dispute about, you know, when exactly he was reigning. Um, but uh, according to the to the story he gives us, it's uh, right after Romulus uh, is either passes or is taken into the heavens by the gods, depending on who you believe or who he believes. And then uh, what we're left with is kind of two two groups of people, the, the Romans and the, uh, is it Sabine, Sabines? who had joined <laughs> yeah who had joined under romulus um with their own king they came with their own king and they were kind of like dual kings i guess and then when their king died they just they uh, agreed to just be under romulus's rule so they think it's their turn to have a king and the romans are like that's not we don't that's not a good idea at all <clears throat> um so instead the the patricians who uh thankfully the the hicks brothers let us know that here he seems to be using that term interchangeably with sen- senators right here at the beginning, but that those become separate things later on. Um, they decide, well, we'll just like take turns ruling for right now and kind of calm everybody down for a couple days at a time, six days. Or, and so they do that, but then the people are like, yeah, they just don't want to give us a king. And so they decide they have to go ahead and give them a king. And they come up with a good idea that the Sabians will will nominate someone and the Romans will nominate someone that the other side gets to choose as the, as a, you know, as a candidate. Um, but the Sabians decided to defer to the Romans who, who would rather pick one of the Sabians than have them pick one of the Romans for some reason. Um, and they pick Numa who everyone loves. Uh, and he is known as um, being incredibly pious and disciplined um his life is very uh austere he studies philosophy and he and he worships the gods um we, we find out that he had had a wife who was the daughter of the king the previous saving king um because he was so well loved um but that she passed uh even before he became king and in the interim he spent he moved even out of the saving country into the into the countryside where he spent his time visiting kind of rural um uh, shrine sites of the gods and and uh possibly maybe was rewarded to then become the husband of a nymph for a little while um and get, gain all kind of wisdom from the goddess and so maybe that's where he gets a lot of his uh, his wisdom from we get a lot of other he gives us some other like examples of these kind of, of people who have been given this kind of special treatment by the gods so we'll kind of go past those a little bit um but then they come to Numa and they're like, hey, we we voted you should be king. And he's like, no, that's a terrible idea. Rome is very warlike. You don't need you don't want me. I have no interest in war. And they plead with him and they plead with him. And his own father 
kind of, I think probably is the one who convinces him and says, hey, maybe that's exactly what they need is a king who isn't all about war to kind of calm things down a little bit. And wouldn't it be a waste of all your gifts from the gods to not use them for the people? Uh, so he eventually decides to go and become king. And really a lot of his his law giving is um, religious. He spends the kind of, it seems like the most time kind of setting up uh, rules for the priesthood and rules for the uh, the Vestal Virgins. Uh, he gets rid of the huge, the first thing he does is get rid of the huge guard of spearmen that are there to, to protect him as the king. And he says, you know, I trust the people, they trust me. And so he gets rid of that. And uh, one of the ways he kind of curbs their warlike nature is to just have lots and lots of religious festivals. And so he kind of combines their religious ceremony with getting to feast and, and enjoy themselves and have, um, uh, you know, the rituals with it, with, with civilized, uh, enjoyment. And, uh, it seems to work. They, he passes like lots of laws about what can and can't be done in the, in the temples. He creates, um, the pontifices and the Maximus Pontiff, uh, Maximus Pontiff, Pontiff or Pontifex Maximus, I guess. So these, this priesthood, uh, these chief priests basically, and then, a couple of other uh, sets of priests, um, some who are uh, responsible for the for taking care of these shields that he's given by the goddess, and see those are the Sally Sally, and this is um, let's see, lost the lost the far for the shield. Anyway, they. He, he sets up these religious these religious groups. Um, one is, and the other ones are the, are the guardians of peace. And so these guardians of peace actually go out and and uh, negotiate whenever they feel the Romans feel affronted by someone. Um, they they actually make peace and before there's a war that breaks out, um, which seems to go a long way in keeping the peace and really endears him not only to the Romans but to all of his surrounding neighbors. So much so that they that. Rome really enjoys a time of peace through his whole life. Uh, the 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 gates of uh, the uh, Janus Temple are, are never are never open, which means they're never at war. And his and his funeral is is eventually uh, visited by by his neighbors as well, and, and he bring gifts um, to commemorate his his life and his his time of peace. But yeah, really, that was almost all of the things that he instituted had to do with. The religious practices and then a few there were a few other things he he uh distributed the property more evenly so there would be less property uh assuming that people who were if they had farms to take care of they'd be more they'd be better citizens basically um and he divided the people by trade or craft this was probably one of the big ones though because he basically breaks the two groups down the sabines and the robins instead of being two separate peoples uh, kind of starts to group them by what they do. And then he gives those groups their own sets of rituals, religious rituals and governing bodies and um, responsibilities. And so they become more uh, associated with what they do as a, a musician or a, or a, a craftsman of, or whatever it is that whatever guild they're part of and kind of let go of their, what would have been more like an, almost like an ethnic identity as saving a Roman, the way we might think of it. Uh, and therefore makes them them citizens with their own rights, their own special their own special things to do. And then lastly, he uh, he kind of redoes the calendar. He adds some months, moves some things around, gets it a little bit more uh, usable because of they had 
kind of crazy lengths of days uh, for months. And so he gets something that eventually gets reworked a little bit more later on, but he kind of gets a, a more workable calendar in place uh, for the Romans. Yeah. And part of that, he, and it does say that he puts January at the beginning to ahead of March, uh, which had been the beginning for, uh, to give peace a precedence. Uh, and then unfortunately it all falls apart after he dies. <laughs> Rome does not stay a, a peaceful, peaceful nation as we probably know from our history. It's, it's gates of war are open pretty much the rest of the time. It's in existence with very few times in between where they close for short periods. Uh, but uh, yeah, so Numa is known as being this great leader of peace um, through and through, it seems like religious piety primarily. So I thought that was really interesting. And I completely forgot about that. Very different from my heard. So it's interesting that these two are paired. Oh, thanks, Brandon. Not bad. It's a halfway decent narration. Thank you, sir. <laughs> you 87? 87, yeah. I, you know, when we, when he was reading the when we were when I was reading the calendar part of it, I thought it seems like such a practical change compared to all the other adjustments he made. He got all of this like ritual based and and religion religious based stuff, and then all of a sudden he's like, "I'm going to tweak the calendar." And but I think there's two points that I for me that I that I realized part of it because of your narration and part like toward the end of the reading of it was the, well, for one, the Roman world was not, it didn't have those two spheres like we do, right? The separation of church and state was not really a thing. So mm -hmm. the calendar itself was very religious mm -hmm. in that, in that, I mean, a month's represented gods and and who you honored during that time like he talks about april being potentially named for aphrodite and therefore is a time of you know love and then although he also offers an alternative interpretation of what the april is just named after opening and flowers are opening during that month but um the which is is kind of a weird thing because both of them would still indicate the desire for love <clears throat> since flowers are, you know, such a uh, typical part of romance. And yet it's kind of a secularization of it, right? Uh, if it's Aphrodite, then it's very religious, religion dominated. <clears throat> but if it's about nature's opening its flowers, bloom, you know, flowers blooming, then it feels a lot more secular than Aphrodite. But the other point was um, was the, the the idea that March was always the first month of the year, and March is the is named for Mars, and so there's this precedence or this prioritizing of war. And when he changes it to Janus, um, he's de-emphasizing war and prioritizing something else, which I'd heard. I'd heard arguments for why January was named for Janus and why it became the first month of the year based on the fact that Janus was the two-faced God. And so there's one face that kind of looked back to the end of the previous year and one face that looks toward the, the coming of the new year. But he actually argues that it's, he's not named, he doesn't have two faces because he's looking at two, two years 
nor is that the reason why it's the first month of the year, but he has two faces because when he, when Janus was king, he turned brutal men into peace loving men. And so he changed their faces and that they're, they're, that's why there's there's two faces because he ruled over men with two faces, mm. but not two faces at the same time, but two faces at different times, right? They were once brutal and hostile and now they are peace loving and um, kind. So uh, that that indicates the, the peacefulness of the month of January, right? It's kind of interesting. Mm. Yeah, it, especially in that paragraph where it talks about that, he also mentioned that that's the bottom of that paragraph and the top part of his um is february and he talks about that it february is the month of purification which it means february's means so it's interesting that they it's the first thing is this change from the bestial to the to the more man-like and that's followed immediately by purification mm -hmm. um and ceremonies for the dead before you get into the rest of the year it's pretty interesting and it's also i mean but then it falls right before war so you purify yourself before you go to war. Interesting too that the Hicks brothers in their in their note on the two faces on page mm -hmm. one thirty seven says Plutarch's explanation is eccentric. <laughs> <laughs> my favorite part was the um, well, I don't know if it was my favorite part, but a part that humored me mm. was the kind of the knocking at the Greek influence on all this. Like mm -hmm. they were like to, to think that this claim that Numa was friends with Pythagoras to think that Numa was incapable of becoming moral and virtuous on his own is ridiculous. Also to think that he was educated by a barbarian yeah. <laughs> or the Higgs brothers translated as non-Greek kindly, but then tell you that the word there is actually barbarian. Yeah. Uh, that to think that Numa was educated by non-Greek or by a barbarian. And then, and then the, the other one was, uh, what does he say? It's on page, I read me a note actually, because it was funny to me. Page 122. What section is that? My uh, page, page, numbers. page 122. Yeah, but my page numbers don't line up with yours. What? Uh, You're not reading the Hicks Brothers or is it? You have I am. But it has different page numbers? Yeah. <laughs> what section is it? Uh, 13. Thank you. It says... At the end of that first gigantic paragraph, it says, enough of Greek etymologies with an exclamation point. Yeah. Where they're trying to figure out where the name from the kind of shield comes from. Yeah. Enough of Greek etymologies. Yeah. I found that fascinating, the connection there that, you know, it, Plutarch launches with connecting him or not connecting him to Pythagoras and how often Pythagoras gets mentioned throughout this one. That's yeah, what he says. Based on the number of similarities between the two, we can forgive those who think that Numa was taught yeah. by Pythagoras yeah. <laughs> or that he knew Pythagoras. You know? oh, yeah. I mean, his words were that, that you know, it's either one of two things, that he's naturally capable of attaining moral excellence on his own. Mm -hmm. I don't know who buys that. Or that he, we should attribute his education to a non-Greek greater than Pythagoras. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so I was like, why do we have to go greater? But it went greater. And so I, from there, I kept reading for Pythagoras. His yeah. high regard was not missed. The uh, the numerous groupings of priests that he created, uh, the best that I understand is that they're serving different purposes, right? I found that interesting that, you know, basically that's his focus. 
as to forming people into priests. <laughs> um, and so I think about um, the role of king, because that's what he is, and he's shaping the priests. Um, and yet, when he died, he commanded that all that he had written be destroyed. Mm-hmm. And yet what he created did not last. Immediately, the very first guy says, this peace-loving way of life is ridiculous. Let's get rid of it. Yeah. His name is Hostilius. I guess that's probably where the Latin word for hostile, or the English word comes from that Latin hostile. But yeah. He probably is the one who gives the the meaning to the word hostile, hostilius. Right. Yeah. Well, it, what fascinated me in the reading of it, how many mm-hmm. times have I said that? Have I said that? But fascinated You're me on your author. third. <laughs> uh, the whole story fascinates me, apparently. But mm-hmm. the, and I, I want to be careful not to go down too much of a rabbit trail on this because I think our next call is going to be on the comparison of the two. Right. Or based on, on Plutarch's comparison of the two. But, but Numa is very clearly trying to change the nature of the Romans by emphasizing piety as the highest virtue and by embodying it. Mm-hmm. I mean, even to the point where he tells that story about the dinner, yeah. where he just feeds all these people like this kind of regular normal meal on regular normal plates, you know, like it'd be like eating, eating. Um, oh, what's the, what's the story about the, was it when the government was shut down and president Trump had, like one of the college teams that had won the championship that year, they get to they get to go visit the White House. Yeah, yeah, yeah. All of them do, but this whatever team this was went to the White House. And so he just bought food out of his pocket, but he just bought like a bunch of it's like Chick-fil-A, wasn't it? Yeah. And Big Macs and stuff or something from McDonald's. Because the government was shut down, so they had no money to provide a meal, right? Uh, during one of the budget debates or something. And so he just gave him this this you know normal food meal, be like you know like us eating Big Macs out of cardboard boxes on Thanksgiving, and uh, but then he says while he's talking to them in their their eating and stuff, he says, "Oh, a goddess has just arrived," and he orders the servants to replace everything with you know gold platters and whatever uh, much much higher quality food, and it, even there, right? Like the, he's embodying this idea that. Um, the, the hierarchical distinction, I think, between God and man, mm-hmm. and and the attention that man has to give when gods are, when we're when we're in the presence of gods or when we're worshiping, um, and all of that apparently leads to a very peaceful society and a very calm, tranquil society. That uh, that it's it's not it's not that it's not found in Lycurgus, right? Like Kyrgyz basically creates it by making them so well. He obviously we said last call, last show that he um, or episode that he um, he embodied courage as the highest virtue rather than piety. But in doing that, he created a people that were so strong and powerful and well trained that they didn't go to war because they're nobody was nobody wanted to fight them. Or they rarely went to war because nobody wanted to fight them, um, and they didn't have any desire to take land away from other people because they were temperate in that regard, right? Yeah. Um, 
so interestingly how they both accomplish a kind of peacefulness but in very very different ways and uh in quite appealing ways i think especially for numa with numa from to me yeah so if you go to the beginning of 15 um he says the hicks brothers translation says all of this religious education made the Romans credulous, not to say gullible, and placed them under Numa's spell, to the point that they came to accept the most preposterous stories as true and believe nothing he said was incredible or propose impossible. Right? So they've embraced the oddities of, of however Numa explains the world with. Yeah. And, I mean, I... I under a spell, but, you know, when he can say to them, oh, wow, look, a goddess just transformed our meal. And mm-hmm. they're like, yep, that's exactly what happened. Yeah, I, we don't, I don't currently live in a society where as a people, we embrace mystery. <laughs> I, but I do think a big part of it is that he had, I mean, why they elected him, right? He had been living that kind of life already. He had already been living in an austere life and one that was devoted to to the shrines and things. And, you know, we still have have this term of like someone has moral authority, right? Because of how they're actually, not because they have a title, but because of how they actually live their life. And so when someone who who is taking a vow of poverty, let's say, or a vow to take care of the sick, like someone like a mother Teresa, when she tells you, when you, when she says things like do these things and, you know, give to the poor or whatever, live on less. She has this, uh, this position of moral authority to make those statements. Right. And so when he says, you know, if you're a musician, you need to do these rituals to, to the gods and you need to do these things. Then he has this, He's living it out, right? He he puts his palace next to the temple, right? Or a palace type building so that he can be always at at the times for prayers and all these kind of things. And so I think it's interesting you brought up that he 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 didn't want any of it written down. He passed all these things on to the priests, but then it doesn't appear that the the next king is chosen from that class of that, that group of people. It's not the next king is uh I think his well, his grandson eventually, but like his son loses out to his nephew or something, and then or somebody else, and then his grandsons after that. But they're they're hereditary in some sense from this from this group. Not, and we don't get the implication that they were part of this priesthood that was trained, at least from this text. So the one taking over as king isn't the one actually trained in in the religion and philosophy. The, all all the things all the what a 24 volumes he wrote on religion and philosophy that he took with him. The King isn't trained in that, mm-hmm. which I thought because Plutarch makes the direct connection that like Numa was the philosopher King. He was Plato's philosopher. He says it basically he references Plato and he's the example we have of, of someone living that out. What, what Plato had, had prescribed, but then it, di- it dies with him. It doesn't get, the next king is a pull from that same philosopher or priest uh, class. Yeah. Yeah. The, uh, I, I don't know. That's interesting, right? Like why does the, does the, why does the, 
approach to ruling cease with his death. Like, I, I don't know. In, in, in my reading of Plutarch, he doesn't, he doesn't, he doesn't seem to connect those as the reasons, but he puts them next to each other, which would easily lead one to think that way. Um, I mean, he just says that the, you know, the tablets of his philosophy and stuff were buried with him. Um, and then eventually burned and that the laws weren't written down or the laws were, the laws were written down, but then what he says in, in section 22, while Numa was still alive, he had instructed the priest in what he had written making sure that it was written in their hearts as well as their minds mm -hmm. accomplished this and believing that it would be irreverent to allow his sacred precepts to circulate as mere lifeless words. He asked that the tablets be buried with him. The uh, lifeless words, of course, again, because you you brought it up, Brandon, and I think you're right, but that's the, that's Socrates problem with writing in Phaedrus, right? The, mm -hmm. They become lifeless words and, they're not able to defend themselves and people are able to twist them and to reinterpret them. But so you have this, uh, this idea, right. That he's not leaving any written code behind or even written texts on philosophy and ruling. Um, but he's trained the priests to be able to do it. And then, you know, his nephew or whoever becomes the next King of Silius and ab abandons all of that. And then because he didn't have access to the writings or, would it have mattered, right? Is, is hum, uh, humilious, Hostilius, humilious would be a completely different person. <laughs> um, Hostilius was, that, that's exactly what they would have been to him, lifeless words, right? He would have just twisted them to his own purposes. So I don't know, like, I don't, I don't see, maybe I, if you guys do tell me, cause I want, I want to know if it's there, if I'm missing it, but does, does Plutarch seem to be blaming Numa's decisions for, the eventual rise and, and fall of Hostilius or is Hostilius just so counter a type that, you know, he comes out of the wrong, or as you, maybe you pointed out, Brandy comes from the wrong, the wrong class or the wrong sect or whatever, and just can't do it or won't do it. I mean, won't rule in this way. Yeah. It's interesting that it says that Hostilius, I was mistaken. I don't think that he's a relative. He, he, Hostilius, it says he competed with Marcius, who is his son or his grandson, maybe I can't tell. Um, they competed for the kingship, and that Numa's descendant in that case didn't win. Is but his son ends up getting it after Hostilius. But there's there's this, there's a there's a competition for the kingship, like they avoided when when they chose Numa by being selected by you know opponents, basically. Yeah, I don't know that he blames him or if he just says. They they didn't the people didn't choose like they didn't choose from the people he left behind as the wisest, which would have been the priests. You know, I mean, I don't know which way he's going with that, but it's or if he's just stating that this is what happened. There's definitely a democracy or a democratic element to it too, right? Because it's an election, right? Something, yeah. Probably, the center, probably only the patricians are voting. The yeah, Senate. that's what I'm guessing. <clears throat> and so, yeah, is what. He, it, Whatever that contest was, it, it, it bred someone who's a little bit more, I guess, competitive, right? Which it was going to, but 
So I don't know who's who's who he put, who Plutarch is putting that on the the blame on in, in this case. So I um I'm in section. I think my copy is a what is it called uh, advanced review copy. So I think that's why my pages are off. Gotcha. So um, it's just the one I have. Um, in section twenty, after the indented quote about the wise philosopher, the wise man is truly called blessed, and also blessed are those who hear the words flowing from the wise man's mouth. He said, it is also possible that the only thing needed to make people law-abiding without the need for enforcement and fear of punishment is the brilliant and conspicuous, yeah, example of a virtuous leader. Mm -hmm. Just the example of a blameless and blessed manner of life will inspire imitation and bring people together of their own free will to live in harmony with one another and to seek justice for all. Is this not the best outcome law and policies can hope to achieve? The greatest ruler is the one who instills these habits and this manner of life in his people. And so, probably should say in this way. The way Numa did it? Yeah. Well, he I mean, says we pay Numa no as in the first part of that paragraph, right? Right, because he says, we pay Numa no higher compliment than to say that he understood this better than anyone ever has, right? So they're giving, they're attending, uh, uh, giving him the testimony of that, um, right? So he embodied it in himself, um, but to, uh, uh, he instilled those habits and the manner of life in his people, and yet it's it still didn't last. Yeah. It reminds me of um, the Aeneid, the very first epic simile in the Aeneid mm. is this. Mm. It's one of my favorite epic similes, and it comes from the Virgil, so, you know, that means a, that says a lot. Um, the, I don't know what it says a lot of, but it says a lot. Uh, this is in book one, line 201 in the, this is the Fitzgerald translation. When rioting breaks out in a great city and the rampaging rabble goes so far that stones fly and incendiary brands for anger can supply that kind of weapon. If it so happens, they look round and see some dedicated statesman, a veteran whose record gives him weight. They quiet down, willing to stop and listen. Then he prevails in speech over their fury by his authority and placates them. Just so, the whole uproar of the great sea fell silent as the father of it all, Neptune, scanning horizons under the open sky, swung his team around and gave free rein in flight to his eager chariot. Hmm. It, this whole idea, right, that there's this furor that's that's um, going crazy. And in the story, it's actually happening with a storm on the sea. And in the analogy and the epic simile, it's happening with people in a in a rabble. Um, but then it's a statesman, a, 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 a calm, authoritative statesman who just his very presence calms the people. Then he's able to speak to them. And the very presence of Neptune calms the sea, and then he's able to speak out to Aeolus. Uh, and that's kind of what Numa is here, right? This mm. that uh that yeah. is his just, presence piety and his presence and um is able to to calm in ways that apparently hostilius couldn't do or didn't want to do yeah I, yeah I, 
what was it that the people who elected these next leaders didn't look for these qualities in their leader? They looked for them for Numa and chose him because of it. Is that's what we're told now, right? Maybe, maybe somebody got paid off somewhere. Right? I don't know. Yeah. Um, but what happened in between that the next elections after spending so much time with this man who apparently instilled these habits in them and a manner of life in them, they didn't choose somebody to continue that. Yeah. Yeah, yeah because it's interesting that the, the thing you first read, Andrea, in part 20, mm-hmm. a lot of that could also be said about like Hergis, right? That he embodied. Yeah. I mean, it was a different virtue, but he embodied it. Right. Yeah. And so and they he, followed he it. Instilled it in his people. Mm-hmm. Um, and then it lasts a really long time. So when, we, like, like Matt said, we'll get to comparison when we read the Plutarch's comparison next week. But, um, but also, I think one what's interesting is that the original problem that they had to solve he eliminates because the original problem is we have the Romans and the Sabines, and they don't trust each other to be the leader. Right. And then they eventually the Romans choose this Sabine that they do trust, who's this honorable man. And he and he's then he's king for a long time. And in the midst of that reign, he basically dissolves those two divisions. Like they become non-existent by the time his reign is over. And so they he solves that problem within society. And then they seem to lose sight of the fact that um you still need someone with that kind of that that's that kind of honorable person, right? Because they they chose him to solve some one specific problem, but it turned out he was really kind of honorable all around or, or and and so uh, yeah it's interesting i don't know it doesn't say in this it doesn't give it to us in here but is there now a bunch of little factions and and so there's less you're going to have an even harder time getting a consensus um and so some, so two guys have to like are good out the way we're very used to with politicians right in the senate on the in within the senate kind of putting each other down and put, puffing themselves up until one of them is chosen or you know offering promises to whoever's going to vote for them. And so you get a person who, who that's their modus operandi, right? Is to, to conquer, to, to win in some way, shape or form. And so you kind of just eradicate the kind of, or you eliminate the kind of person that Numa was from even being considered because you've now set up a a competitive, a competitive uh, system to, to pick the next King. I made a note in the reading to, to that line that you brought up already, Andrea, about the people falling under his spell. Yeah. Is that this was this was Numa's version of like Kyrgyz's programming. Right. right? Like Kyrgyz program people, Numa put him under a spell. And mm. the putting him under a spell feels less aggressive to me. <laughs> um, but it's probably not a positive thing. I don't know. Right. Um I don't know how it would be perceived in Plutarch's mind, but it doesn't feel like a positive thing to me. Um, But what's interesting is that the programming apparently lasts longer. Uh, Right. It's more, it's more uh, stable, I guess. um, than than putting them under a spell. I don't know, but but it's it's also weird though, because putting them under a spell sounds temporary. Right, like it, like it is. But the right. other ways that Plutarch describes Numa's work that he changed their hearts and minds doesn't sound temporary. Their habits, instilling habits. I mean, habits are the who you are. So, like yeah. that's not, yeah, that's not temporary. Yeah, certain right. things definitely remained. Right, like these these priesthoods remained and these rituals remained. They just kind of got subsumed by a more warlike 
posture. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So, but yeah, but everywhere else we read where some people were under a spell, it's always for a, a period of time, right? You know, you read in the Tempest and Shakespeare, or we read in any fairy tale, right? It's a, it's a, there's a, there's a time limit that how long that spell lasts and you come out of it. But what I found really fascinating though, was when they talk about the books being kind of coming back up later. And the, yeah, and right. the only person who reads them is the, is the current Praetor. Yeah. And then he takes an oath and just tells the rest of the Senate, like, I think it would be really sacrilegious for anybody else to read these. Mm-hmm. And so I, I'm, I'm so curious, like at that point, is he just like, uh, I mean, I'm, I don't know what time, when that would be, like, that'd be the time when there's an emperor at that point. I can't, I don't, I don't know the timing well enough, but, but he's like, he reads all this stuff. Right. And so there's this point as Praetor where he may have had this option of like, I could be this, the next Numa. I could like live this out. I could take Numa's writings and philosophy and religion. And he's just like, nah, we should burn this. This is if, if this, we don't want people to expect this from the king, right? We don't want people to respect this from the leader again. Well, I think you're, you're adding know. stuff. Yeah. Plutarch I, doesn't give us why. No, no. Yeah. I'm, it, no, I'm saying it just makes you really curious. Like what, okay. what like what is he reading there and then go, no, people shouldn't read this. Like, what is it in there? We, we don't know. We don't, we don't even know what Noah wrote. Right. Right. But what in his philosophy and, and religious text did this Praetor decide would be too sacrilegious? And my guess would be dangerous to, to like be read to the people. Yeah. I don't know. It was just very, it piqued my interest a lot. It made me very yeah. curious what was in there. Well, it certainly, it certainly harkens back to that idea of lifeless words mm. that there's, there's a kind of wisdom, there's a kind of word or phrase, sentence, whatever, that has a wisdom in it that can't be received by people because they're, because they're, um, because their passions or their desires. And so the, uh, the idea that it would be, it would be pearls before swine, if I can borrow the phrase from scripture, mm-hmm. right? I mean, casting your pearls before swine, that's the sacrilegious aspect to it, right? There's, there's some sort of wisdom possibly in these words that the hoi polloi wouldn't be able to perceive and therefore it would be it would be lifeless words to them and it would and then therefore trampled mm. uh, by them by a hostilius for example that uh that it was better to just destroy them than to have them be abused in that way have them be ignored in that way well which raises uh, the question how much could the predator even understand them then right if he's if he's only receiving them as lifeless words too Right. If he is, yeah. If he himself doesn't have the wisdom to see what's in him. But but enough wisdom to see that there yeah. is greater wisdom than even he can receive. Yeah. Yeah. I mean it mentioned something about it's four hundred years later when those were found. Right. So how much how much would the priesthood even have retained from what they were taught, right? Right. Yeah. Who knows? I mean, the other thing that I thought was odd is that he says on the very last paragraph of the whole section about Hostilius that he reigned after Numa, the, the fourth one after, but that he mocked and insulted most of the things Numa had done. And so now we're not just following, right? Like it's one thing to not hold accountable or to continue, but now we're going to speak against. 
Um, He especially ridiculed Numa's devotion to religious worship, accusing it of making men cowards and leading to idleness. And so that's a gigantic shift that four kings, the fourth king later makes. Mm. Um, And so, you know, Plutarch credits him as the one, uh, Hostilius, of turning their hearts back to war. And that that last sentence is just brilliant. Hmm. Under the grave effects of debilitating illness, he, Hostilius, resorted to superstitions. The person who mocked the religious piety resorted to superstitions that had nothing in common with the piety of Numa. Mm -hmm. And he spread the disease of superstition to others until, it is said, a bolt of lightning struck him down. Which is, I mean, whatever. It's just fascinating that that the human impulse to reject God is is just always there. And then when it happens, you can't actually fully and ultimately reject the divine. And so, but you can't accept, at that point, you can't accept him. So you have to resort. So then you create your own superstitions, your own sort of spirituality. It's fascinating. Like here it is in Hostilius thousands of years ago. And here it is in us today, right? (laughs) Okay, am I dreaming this? Because I've read and slept, I've read and slept this book, right? Um, Did I dream that Numa uh, created a priesthood that dealt with lightning strikes? Uh, He's no, he gets he gets the ritual for purification after a lightning strike by by trapping the two demigods. The whole thing That's of Jupiter. It. Yeah. I was like, I know yeah. that was something with lightning, which is yeah. fascinating. He he learns how to be purified from lightning strike. And then his this guy that follows him is killed by lightning strike. Yes, that that's what I was. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you, Brandon. Oh, <laughs> oh, I didn't even see that. Yeah. Oh, God. I didn't think of it until it's you were so saying good. it out loud. As you were saying it out loud, Matt, I was like, wait a minute, wasn't there a purification from lightning or something? And I was like, uh-huh. <laughs> that's so great. Yeah. Yeah, because this whole last section read to me like um, when you're reading through uh, the you know the 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 kings of the in the Old Testament, like it's like this guy ah. did great, and then bad, 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 oh. bad, bad. This guy did great, bad. bad. It's like <laughs> all this failure to like stay with the God, to stay with God. In this case, the gods, but yeah, but even there, like he resorts to superstition, right? Like yeah. even even for these pagans, there's this difference between like right right rituals toward the gods and then just kind of ridiculous superstition, which I found pretty interesting. I love the fact that he gets elected though and refuses to to accept the results of the election until God confirms it. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Goes up on the the hill or whatever and the Torpean Hill, I think. And, and then waits for a sign and all the people are there waiting in silence. It says like hushed, all fell over them and then the birth sign comes confirms the election and then he comes out and he's like okay and then he puts on the royal robes yeah yes. and he comes down and he's king refuses them until that till that sign no mention of course that hostilius did anything of the sort so right, right. the election and then i mean it's silent so you i don't know for sure but he doesn't seem like the type who would uh who would have done that well the implication that they're they're fighting for the spot says that they're going to take it once they win it right and so yeah it's very very interesting mm-hmm. i i actually i actually like found my mind wandering as i was reading it mm-hmm. to uh 
to like, what would it look like if a president was elected? And the United States, who embodied piety and yeah. changed things about our system and about our structure to emphasize piety over yeah. whatever we- Capitalism. Yeah. <laughs> um, and like, would it even be possible? Like, could you imagine a president, a person getting elected president of the United States and then and then um, abolishing the uh, the uh, what do you call those people? Secret Service. Mm, right. <laughs> I'm getting rid of the Secret Service because I don't want to rule over people who don't trust me, and I don't want to communicate that right. I don't trust people who pick me. Right? Yeah. Secret mm-hmm. Service gone. Only on foreign visits. <laughs> mm. We don't. I don't think we had. If I remember correctly, like the president didn't have protection until like I think till after Lincoln got shot. Like I don't I think Grant's the first one that had like security guards that eventually became Secret Service. Mm-hmm. So we lived that way for a long time. I mean for a while anyway. Of course it was like a lot harder, right? Like we gotta if I've got to catch up to you with my musket <laughs> and like load it in front of you. Odds of getting you are, sl- are slimmer, I guess. But right. um, <laughs> what? I'm not going to kill you. What if, I'm not loading anything right now. This is Look just in case head. a rabbit comes by. Don't worry about it. Um, <laughs> yeah. But it, all these things, though, right? Like, I mean, our once you have Christendom, right? A, a Christian emperor. That's what the holidays were, right? They were. They were. You only got off from work on not sip like. Well, like, to make your point earlier, Matt, there were no such thing as civil versus religious holidays. They were all the same thing, right? So all the holidays were religious. Um, and it just, we just went right from them being Roman religious holidays to official Christian holidays. I mean, they were already being observed by the church, but they then became the official, you know, civil holidays because the, because the emperor, empire became Christian. And so, yeah, I I remember I remember writing a lengthy Facebook post at one point years ago about how. I didn't, um, I thought it was hilarious that people were replacing Merry Christmas with Happy Holidays. <laughs> and they think that they're secularizing the the day, but holiday literally comes from the word holy day. Yeah. So you're saying happy holy day, but you don't acknowledge that it's holy, except you're calling it that. Right. Like, okay, sure, yeah. don't say Merry Christmas, but you, you didn't. You didn't change anything in the what you're saying. Yeah. In the in the end, right? Even though you think you did. So I thought that was kind of hilarious, the the irony of it. Because they're all holy day. Well, nowadays there are holy days that are making something calling something else holy than yeah. Than uh God, but yeah. We're living in a very like weird period of history, like the last what 150 years, where there are civil holidays that aren't connected to any kind of religion yeah. this hasn't been the case for any civilization christian or otherwise for all of human history so right. we're the anomaly for sure yeah like what's labor day what's that a holy day for marxism the worker <laughs> the work or marx yeah mm. i dude i thought this is excellent this is such an excellent story like i know like every time i read these i realize more and more yeah why the Charlotte Mason community reads Plutarch's lives as part of their so much, yeah, 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 their daily their daily uh, work with their children. Rhythm. Yeah, I had never, I had never read it 
any Plutarch until I started working for Cersei and we published these. Like I knew about who they were, but I hadn't read any at all. My kids read a couple of them, but and uh, my son, I'm so thankful. Like my son loves like, like Plutarch's one of his favorite things to read. So yeah. Good reason. Excellent. And this one is fascinating because it's like it's two very different lawgivers, right? Like it's it's really I'm really curious about Plutarch's comparison next. So um and that's what we'll talk about next time. And if you're out there listening, obviously we're going to look at the comparison, but it's not very long. So we're going to go ahead and combine the comparison with the Q&A. So if you've got some questions about any of it, you can send them into us. Um, podcast at searchinstitute.org. And uh, we'll do a little bit of both because I think we'll have some of our own good questions to come up with too when we look at the comparison. So. Well, if you want to um, ponder some more thoughts with Andrew Kern, he'll be starting an intensive later this week. What's teaching the... like every day is Christmas. Okay. Because we're talking about holy days. Yeah, yeah. It starts and <laughs> runs. It starts next week and runs like what in the middle of into Just the middle of December. Weeks. Okay, four weeks. Okay. Yeah. Very cool. Yeah. Well, we'll put a link to that in the in the show notes too. No, it's yeah. It, I'm. I was like, I don't want to miss this one. I was really excited to when he came back from a vacation and had this idea of how he wanted to offer this course. Nice. Yeah. Very cool. Well, this has been fun. I'm glad we I'm glad we decided to go back to to Plutarch, even though we read it a couple of years ago, because clearly I hadn't remembered nearly enough of it. So I need to talk about it more. All right. Well, thank you all for being here. Thanks for everybody for joining us. Uh hope you join us next week as we talk about again the, the comparison and answer some questions. Um, and we will let you guys know what's coming up next after that, because I don't remember now off the top of my head. And I don't have my list in front of me. Nope. Uh, I'll put that we'll somewhere. Yeah, get that posted uh, to all the places. Uh, if you don't get our emails, we usually have it out in there, and, it's, and it'll be on the website and stuff like that, too. So, uh, see you all next week, and be sure to check out the other shows on the Cersei Podcast Network. Mm-hmm.